Good evening, EV Free. Good evening. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, to everyone who is a mom, who will be a mom, happy Mother's Day to you. And I also do want to acknowledge for people who have lost a mother, who have lost a child, um, this is also a day for you as well to be honored and celebrated. My wife and I, we journey with too many couples that struggle with infertility and have had more than one miscarriage, and it's incredibly painful. And so this day is also for you as well, if, if that's for you. Um, yeah, this day is a very, very big and, and meaningful for me because some of you might know my story. I'm incredibly close with my mother. There is no one that has influenced me or shaped me more than my mom. And I'm super sad because she lives in San Diego, so I can't spend Mother's Day with her. But I'm going to celebrate with my wife, who is mother to my child, and her mom right after this. So I'm going to preach, pray, and then I'm going to be out of here, <laughs> like some of you. Um, yeah, my, my, my mom and I, we have this odd relationship. We're oddly very close. I think it's because, uh, you know, she's a single mom, or she was a single mom, and, and I'm an only child. And so we have this odd close relationship. It's a little too close, to be honest. Uh, to, give you, to give you an example, uh, I have extremely high emotional intelligence. It's because I didn't have a chance not to. I didn't have a chance or opportunity. I wasn't allowed to not talk about my feelings constantly. I didn't have the luxury to come home after school, and when uh, you know, a normal situation is a parent would ask, how was your day? How was school? Like any other teenage boy, you say, fine, and then just go upstairs and play video games until dinner. But I didn't have that luxury. When I would come home, my mom would ask, how was school? I'd be like, fine, and I'd start to head upstairs, and she's like, no, 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 you're coming back. And we would, she'd be like, what, what, what did you do? What did you learn? What was God speaking to you today? How did that make you feel? So I, and it would be two to three hours sometimes every day during my adolescent life. And so I, I didn't have a chance, guys. I didn't have a chance to just play video games. Um, and, 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 and we have this odd, close relationship. But, you know, the, one, of, one of the more painful things about how close we were was my mom was always trying to fix me. She was always trying to, tr- to change me, to correct me, to control me in a little way because we were just so close. Uh, for example, you know, if you see my haircut, I've had a side part since I was in first grade. This haircut is trendy now, but I look like a banker ever since I was six, six or seven years old. She, you know, you, you see the way that I dress? I actually dress the same since I was in first grade. I dress like an old man. Um, you know, even the way that uh, I performed in school. When I would, when I would show her my report card, she would, she would always correct me and make sure she'd fix, fix my study habits because she'd be like, what is this weird symbol next to the letter A? And I'd be like, mom, that's a minus. She'd like, why did you have A minus? And I was like, well, it's because I got a 93.5 on the final exam. And she'd be like, why did you get a 93? It's like, well... That's what I got. How come you couldn't get seven more points? <laughs> Go study more, right? So that was my life. She'd, she'd, she'd try to change me, fix me, correct me. And I think the mo- most painful or the most 
frustrating kind of uh, experience with my mom was uh, she would constantly try to change or fix my sense of morality or spirituality, which was incredibly unfortunate because uh, she, in, she did it in a really strange way. She just thought everything that I was into was demonic. <laughs> you laugh, but it was really frustrating because I grew up in the early 90s, guys. The early 90s was the height and pinnacle of the era of gangster rap. I couldn't listen to Tupac Shakur because it was demonic. I couldn't listen to Dr. Dre because it was demonic. I couldn't watch MTV because it was demonic. I couldn't even watch the movie Titanic because it was <laughs> demonic. Do you know how incredibly hard it is to grow up in elementary school being the only fifth grader that never watched Titanic? It was very, very hard. You, you know, and I know she meant well. She, she, had, she had incredibly good intention because she wanted to help raise this young man to be an incredibly responsible, good, pure young boy. But what ends up happening is the byproduct of that is that I felt a sense of worthlessness, inadequacy. I didn't feel valuable. I actually felt devalued a lot when I'd have these altercations and inter interactions with my mom. And that's what happens sometimes when you might feel that way when someone is just trying to change you, trying to fix all your problems. You're trying to vent and you have these situations and, and they give you just advice and they try to fix you. Well, you're, you're doing this wrong. You, you, didn't, you didn't say that right or you probably didn't think about this. You, you, you feel like, you feel almost condescended. You feel belittled. You feel devalued as a person, as a human being. But it's funny, right? Because we all have someone in our life that we see they're heading down a road that is unhealthy. We see them heading down a road that's destructive. But we run the risk of, if we want to try to help them or try to change them or try to fix them, what ends up happening is the same, what hap happens to us. We feel condescended, devalued, inadequate, guilty. So how do we, how do we navigate that? Maybe it's your spouse that you're trying to help fix, change. Maybe it's your children that you want to change, fix, help. Maybe it's a coworker. You just see them and they have a certain problem or issue and you want to help them, but you don't want to hurt them. Maybe it's a close friend with a certain addiction, with a certain habit that's harmful to them. How do, we, how do we help people without making them feel devalued? This is a, this is a real problem that we go through in our, in our daily social interactions. And so, that's what we're going to talk about today. Two weeks ago, we, we finished a series in the Gospel of Mark, which was a lot of fun. And today, I want us to look at the Gospel of John. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of John. You know, John is, um, is really different than the other Gospels. Uh, a couple things, uh, a few things actually, to, to help us understand the way that John is written, a few things to consider is, number one, uh, John portrays a very unique Jesus, a little differently than the other Gospels. 
um, John depicts Jesus in the beginning as the Word, whereas the other Gospels introduce Jesus as a baby, innocent and pure. In the Gospel of Mark, actually, Jesus arrives on the scene almost more like a lion, ferocious and ready to dominate. But in John, we see a different type of Jesus. He starts out where he's the Word. And actually, John actually is the only writer to depict Jesus as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Another helpful thing to understand when we're reading John is that it's, it's not chronologically driven like the other Gospels, but it's more conversation driven. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they take the accounts of Jesus, the events, and his teachings, and they chronologically order it, more or less. But not so in John. It's more conversation-driven. Almost the entire book of John is filled with one-on-one conversations that Jesus has with different characters. And the last thing to consider when we're, when we're reading and studying John is that John likes to do this thing where he contrasts characters. He contrasts characters in a way, or he foils them to help us learn something, help us have an insight of what he's trying to teach. So an example is that he contrasts two women, two sisters, Martha and Mary. He contrasts two people that failed and responded differently, Judas and Peter. But my favorite contrast of characters in the book of John is a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman. In chapter 3, we see a man, a ruler of the Jews, come in chapter 3 to Jesus at night. In chapter 4, we see a Samaritan woman who comes to Jesus at noon. In chapter 3, we see Nicodemus, whose name actually derives from the word Nike in Greek. Nike is the word that actually means victory, like Nike. His, His name means the conquering one, the victorious one, who comes at night to talk with Jesus to actually have a theological debate to try to fix him, correct him. And they debate about how can a man, being grown up, be born again, Jesus? And they have this debate because he's trying to trap him. And then we have another contrasting conversation where Jesus connects and talks with this woman. But what happens with the Samaritan woman is that he transforms her life without making her feel worthless and devalued. So let's read the story of the Samaritan woman together. It comes in chapter 4. Uh, Jesus comes to Samaria, and we, we, it's a very famous story. We, we know that Jews and Samaritans, they don't like each other. Jews don't actually interact with Samaritans. More or less, men don't interact with Samaritan women. And so we, ha- we have this story where Jesus is at a well, and a woman comes to the well, and it's almost as if she expects that no one should be there. It's at noon, meaning that it's, it's when the, the sun is at this highest point. It's the hottest period of the day. No one should be at the well. But here she finds Jesus at the well. So she comes, and it's almost as if she sees a guy there, and she's like, ah, oh, great. And she comes a little closer, and possibly she might even see the tassels on Jesus' cloak. And she's like, ah, oh, he's a Jew. 
He's a rabbi. She, she, she mousily comes to the well, trying to not make eye contact, and Jesus says, can you give me a drink? And they have this interaction, and she's like, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, we don't, we don't talk to each other. And they have this odd conversation about water and, and thirst. And this is, what, this is what Jesus says. He says, whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water living up to eternal life. Now, it, it piques her interest. It piques her interest on what is this water? What is this guy saying? Why is he even talking to me? How, are, how is this situation even happening? And that's what the audience is feeling. How is this conversation even happening? And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I don't want to come to this well every day. For some reason, she didn't want to come and draw water every day. And then this is where the story turns sideways. This is where, this is where you would think as, a, as an audience, as a reader of John, oh, he's going he's gonna to get her. He's going to reveal, I'm the living water. I'm the eternal life. I'm the Messiah. And do some type of miracle where the, the water springs forward unflowingly, right? We're expecting that. He just turned water into wine but that's not what we get Jesus' response says go call your husband and come back whoa she says I have no husband Jesus says that's right the fact is you have had five husbands. And now the man that you're with right now is not your husband. Now, I want to pause right here really quick because how do we read that? How do we read that conversation? With our modern, westernized lens, we read that conversation Almost this way. There's two ways to read that. The first way is almost, I'm going to embellish a little bit. I'm going to read that conversation over again. Sir, please give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus says, go call your husband and then come back. Shame. I have no husband. Jesus. That's right. Because you have had five husbands. And the one you're with now, uh-uh, he ain't your husband. We read it with this modern westernized lens of, oh, shoot. She just got called out. Her stuff. Now, if we read it that way, if we read it that way, which is a very natural modern reading, would this next portion of the story make sense? Somehow in this conversation of all her sin getting called out by Jesus... She goes to everyone and says, come and see this man who has told me everything that I've ever done. And as the story continues, many people want to come to Jesus because of the testimony of the Samaritan woman. 
Now, we have to really think about that, right? Because if we think about the, the modern natural reading that we just read, Jesus calling out all the secret sins in this woman's life, would people want to come to Jesus? Let's think about that for a minute, right? This woman saying, oh, it's awesome. He's like this psychic who knows all your deepest, darkest sins, and he's just going to call it out in public. And everyone's like, that sounds amazing. I'm going to run to him. It's a very po- problematic reading. It's actually not a cogent reading. The second way to read it in what we're not, we're not processing or understanding is that to an ancient reader, this is read incredibly different. Because in the ancient world, women have no rights. Especially the right to divorce. It's not like California law where a non-working wife gets incredibly good end of the deal. In the ancient world, women had no autonomy, had no rights. The only way that a woman would be divorced is if a man divorced her. And actually, the religious system was so corrupt that men who would divorce women was out of affair. Women who would be caught in an affair during the ancient world would be stoned to death. Men who had an affair would just divorce and abandon their previous wife unlawfully. This is the context of the ancient world. So when Jesus, who already, who already does something scandalous in just having a conversation with this woman, when he says, go and call your husband, And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're with now, he won't even marry you. An ancient reader would read that as Jesus is incredibly sympathetic and empathetic towards this woman. And out of that, knowing everything that she's ever done, Jesus, treating her like a human being, something about Jesus' connection with her was transformative in this woman's life. How How do we help people? How do we change people without making them feel a sense of condescension, belittling, devaluing. It's because Jesus focused on the connection, the relationship, the empathy, the knowing over the correction, over fixing her, correcting her, changing her. A reader reads this, and it's amazing to see the contrast in the way that Nicodemus approaches Jesus. A way in which the world is familiar with to conquer, to condemn, to correct, to dominate with intellectual rhetoric and jargon and debate. But that's not the way of Jesus. 
So Jesus transforms people by knowing, by connecting through relationship without judgment and love. So what does this look like? You know, uh, if you were, I, I, I started out in ministry as a college pastor. And if you were to ask any of my former students, they will say that I'm a completely different person. They would say he was incredibly scary. When I started out in college ministry, I would probably preach for about 45 minutes and I would just be yelling. I'd just be yelling at these students. Read your Bibles. If you don't read your Bibles for four hours, if you don't pray three hours, if you don't sacrifice and give your life to Jesus, what are you doing? Get your heads together. That's what I would do for 45 minutes. It was awesome. It was great. I loved it. But the problem was every time I would get off the stage and go down the aisle, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I, I pastored near uh, a church near USC, a lot of uh, Greek life, fraternity, sorority and fraternity people. And as I would walk down the aisle, it was almost like parting of the Red Sea, like sorority girls fleeing this way, fraternity guys fleeing that way. And I, and I kind of wondered after a little while, after, after I preached, I was like, hey, what's going on? Why are people not interacting with me? I just told them what's up. Just told them what the Bible says. What ended up happening is I, I realized that people were incredibly intimidated by me. They were afraid of me because they were afraid that they didn't meet my standard of what a Christian should be, let alone what human beings should be. And I just, I had to process this because I realized even though, even though I wanted to help people, even though my intention was right, I didn't want people to feel devalued and inadequate and worthless and let alone scared of me. But I realized even though I was trying to help, I was actually distancing people farther and farther away from God and the church. And I didn't want that. So I made, I made a radical shift, actually. During this time, I, I actually, I still was working at, in my corporate job. And oddly enough, two of my closest friends at work were two homosexual men. I don't know if it's because I don't, like, exemplify the homophobic masculine persona, but they were just, they were, they'd connected with me. We were, we, were the, we were the closest. They were my closest friends. And, and one of them in particular, I remember just being so freaked out. How to navigate through this friendship? They know that I'm Christian. They know that there's weird tension. What do I do? And I just, I just prayed and I, and I would remember Jesus' example. And I just, I'm just going to focus on the relationship. Focus on him. And, you know, that's, it's been a five-year relationship he still identifies himself as a homosexual. He goes to church uh, sometimes. He, he, he's even went through seasons where he's been abstinent and non-practicing. And he's been incredibly uh, supportive and encouraging. He's been an, advi- an advocate for me in my ministry as well. He's been, he's been so great. And I, I just see his life slowly transforming out of focusing so much on the relationship and the connection. 
there was a college student at my previous church that I, that I, that I worked at, and um, a couple of us co-pastors, we were scrolling through social media, and we saw he's, this, this, this college kid was, uh, this college student was on praise team. He was one of our drummers. And we saw on someone else's Instagram him smoking weed, doing marijuana. And our, our, our pastoral staff was like, what do we do? And one pastor in particular was like, we need to excommunicate him <laughs> and discipline him and call him out. He needs to get off the praise team. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not, I, I, I don't wanna, I'm not sure if I go there, brother. Go there first because we didn't really know him yet. And so what this, the, the student did is he wanted to meet with me um, probably because I just seemed the most nice out of the staff. And I didn't know him. I didn't know him. But what I, what I realized that his, his addiction to drugs was out of a deep sense of isolation and disconnection. He didn't feel like he could be known by people at the church. And there was so much trauma and baggage in his family that no one else knew. And so I said, hey. He's like, do I have to leave the church? I was like, no. He's like, can I still be around and come out to small group and stuff? And I said, yeah. And I could tell he was so shocked by how accepting I was. Because what I wanted to do primarily was focus on connecting and the relationship. That was three years ago, and now I can say that he doesn't do drugs. He actually still faithfully serves on the praise team, and he actually works on staff at a church. And I've recently connected with him, and he said, Eddie, if you, if you, didn't, if you weren't so warm and wanting to connect with me and really knowing my life and understanding and empathizing with me, I don't think I would have stayed at church. And I said, wow, because you work at church now. That's incredible. Most recently, um, there was a situation that happened. Uh, I, have a, I have a brother-in-law. He's actually a future brother-in-law. He's not married to uh, my sister-in-law yet. But uh, he was one of my former college students. He was one of those students that heard me yell for 45 minutes every week. <laughs> but I actually set him up with my wife's sister, my sister-in-law. And to be clear... There is no one that I think is more beautiful other than my wife and who I'm more overly protective of than my sister-in-law. And we, we've all talked with our families and they decided that they want to get married. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about it. They've been dating for over a year. And my, my overly protective big brother side of me, the thing that I can't control... And just being a guy really wonders, I wonder how they're doing physically. Because what I didn't share with you is my future brother-in-law, he's actually a bodybuilder. He's a power, competitive powerlifter. Just imagine me, a lot leaner, buffer, and better looking. And so I have this leaner, buffer, better-looking brother-in-law and my sister-in-law, who I incredibly uh, think is beautiful and I am super overprotective of. And they've been dating for a year and they decided to be married. And I, here I'm wondering and I'm worried and I'm so anxious of like, I just, 
I hope that they're being careful. And I and I and I am and I'm having this and I'm I'm having this debate internally. How do I how do I help him stay accountable without making him feel shamed, guilted, maybe even distant? But what ended up happening was we were last week we were at a restaurant, Wood Ranch. You guys like Wood Ranch? It's a pretty good restaurant. Not as good as Lucille's. All right. I like Lucille's, but he likes Wood Ranch. Well, Wood Ranch, my brother-in-law's here. I'm here. My wife, my son Haddon, and my sister-in-law. And then they go to the bathroom because that's what girls do, right? They go to the bathroom together. And I'm just alone with my future brother-in-law. And I'm like, what can we talk about in a minute and a half? But he actually brings up, hey, bro, I need to talk to you. And I said, yeah, what's up? He's like, uh, I need to tell you that things, things went a little too far physically. And I feel so, so guilty about it. And I, and I, and I said, oh, what, like, what happened? I'm not sure what that means. And he, he disclosed to me, hey, it just went to this place. And I had a moment, my big brother overprotective moment to be like, let's take this outside. <laughs> I'll, I'll fix you right now. I'll change you. I'll show you what's up. But in that moment, as he was sharing in detail, I said, hey, thanks for sharing with me. Like, I'm really thankful because now I know how to pray for you and how to be accountable to you. And later that night, he texted me and he said, Eddie, thank you for being so accepting and so loving I don't, think, I don't think I would be a Christian if, I, if it wasn't for my relationship with you. And it makes me really want to try hard and stay pure. How do we help people without making them feel devalued? Well, Jesus shows us. He focused on the connection, the relationship over the correction. And do you know why we can do that? It's because Jesus took all the correction. Everything that needs to be fixed in you, everything that needs to be changed in you, everything that needs to be fixed with me, everything that needs to be changed with me, Jesus took all of that on the cross. Jesus took And now we're free to live a different life. We're free to focus on relating with people, connecting with them, accepting them. EV3, I hope that we can do this for so many people. I know that you have someone in your mind right now that you just want to help, but you're afraid of crossing that barrier. Church, I exhort you, focus primarily on connecting, empathizing, sympathizing with them before correcting them. Let's pray together. I want to invite you to think about a a person in your life, someone that you deeply care for, could be your spouse, 
could be your significant other, could be your child, could be your coworker, could be your friend, could be someone that, that's in your community group, someone that you care for and are, are worried about and you see them going down a path that might be harmful, unhealthy, or destructive. Father, as we think about these people and as you bring them to light in our minds and in our hearts, Father, we pray that you would be able to help us come to them in near proximity to know them, to listen to them, to hear them, to feel what they feel, to know them at a level that you might know them, to empathize with them, to connect with them at a human level. And Father, I pray as we focus on the example of Jesus Christ, that those that we have in mind will feel free, will feel so transformed by the love and power of Jesus Christ. that they will tell others in their spheres of influence and communities that these people who follow Christ do not judge, do not condemn, but their primary mode of action is wanting to connect with you, to know you, to love you. Father, this is our prayer that you transform us through the way that we love and connect with other people, not by the way that we correct and try to fix them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.